How great is God beyond our understanding? The number of his years is past finding out. He draws up the drops of water which distill as rain to the streams. The clouds pour down their moisture and abundant showers fall on mankind. Who can understand how he spreads out the clouds, how he thunders from his pavilion? See how he scatters his lightning about him, bathing the depths of the sea. This is the way he governs the nations and provides food in abundance. He fills his hands with lightning and commands it to strike its mark. His thunder announces the coming storm. Even the cattle make known its approach. At this, my heart pounds and leaps from its place. Listen. Listen to the roar of his voice and the rumble that comes from his mouth. He unleashes his lightning beneath the whole heavens and sends it to the ends of the earth. After that comes the sound of his roar. He thunders with his majestic voice. When his voice resounds, he holds nothing back. God's voice thunders in marvellous ways. He does great things beyond our understanding. He says to the snow, fall on the earth, and to the rain showers, be a mighty downpour. So that everyone he has made may know his works, he stops all people from their labour. The animals take cover, they remain in their dens. The tempest comes out from its chamber, the cold from the driving winds. The breath of God produces ice, and the broad waters become frozen. He loads the clouds with moisture, he scatters his lightning through them. At his direction they swirl around over the face of the whole earth to do whatever he commands them. He brings the clouds to punish people, or to water his earth to show his love. Therefore, people revere him, for does he not have regard for all the wise in heart? Welcome back to our study of Job. I'm Ian. And this is the Sailor Time to Pause podcast from Plexus Salvation Army, an online church in the UK. I will stop and breathe in your presence, just breathe, just I've been thinking about my mum a lot these last few weeks. It's around five and a half years since she died and Dad's now in the process of moving into a smaller home away from the bungalow that he and Mum had once shared. And it's, it's definitely the right decision. But that process brings up many memories, some happy and some sad. As we cleared furniture and emptied drawers, we couldn't help but find bits and bobs that were hers or that we remember her buying and using or complaining about or losing and loving. And occasionally as we did so, tears were once again shed. It was a reminder that grief lasts more than just a day or two. When Job's friend Elihu speaks in our reading earlier, he's speaking to a grieving man. Job's children have all died and he's in the midst and rawness of grief when his friend says to him, God causes all things to happen, sometimes for a correction and sometimes for love, but God has caused this to happen. I'm glad that I didn't have friends like Job. Contrary to the expectations of many, the Bible is not full of perfect people living perfect lives. 
Those who take time to read it will find many normal people who live normal lives full of ups and downs and happinesses and sadnesses. And so there's a reality to their stories. We come across many characters who face storms in their lives, just as we do. One of those characters was Joseph, and many of us will know the stories of the storms that came to him. Living amongst jealous brothers who became so infuriated with him that they hatched a plot to murder him, he faced the prospect of being killed by the hands of those he loved, tossed into a pit to die the cruel death of exposure. I think that would classify as one of the storms of life. In fact, it's probably more of a hurricane than a simple storm. This is no light set of challenges that he faced that may disturb his sleep pattern for a few nights. This is a major life-changing event of the sort that we might all pray we would never have to face. And it was also not the only storm that Joseph would face in his life, but instead the effects of this hurricane rumbled on throughout much of the rest of his life. Joseph did not die in the pit since his scheming brothers saw an opportunity to make a profit and so they sold him into slavery to a camel train travelling merchants who took him to Egypt in chains. And there he was auctioned off and bought as a house slave by a soldier and later he was falsely accused of raping that soldier's wife for which he was sent to prison. When we look on, we might be forgiven for concluding that Joseph's life was lived under the wrath and judgment of God, his life being spared only so that he could endure more hardship and strife in coming years. And yet we find something curious at the end of his story when he's reunited with his family. In Genesis chapter 50, at the end of his story, Joseph says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, your intention was evil, but God intended it all for good. As he looks back over his life, Joseph is able to see the transformative power of God at work through his troubles. He was able to identify a divine purposefulness in his suffering. He realises that it's only because he eventually came to the attention of Pharaoh that he was uniquely able to help his family to survive the dreadful drought. Under any other circumstances, his family would have starved, the family of Jacob would have been no more, and the covenant with Abraham would have ended. The later story of Joseph and his rise to fame and fortune simply would not have been possible if he'd not endured those past storms. All the different threads needed to come together. And yes, that included all of the dark threads too. All of them were needed to place him in a position of power in order that God's purposes could be fulfilled. All of his past prepared him for such a time as he now found himself in. At the end of his life, Joseph is able to see how much God could repurpose even the biggest storms in his life for good. A few years ago, I heard a friend tell the story of one of the biggest storms they faced in their life. I knew much of the story before, but as he told it this time, I heard one extra detail that I'd either not heard before or which I'd never understood the significance of. And after he spoke, I found the story so powerful that I asked him if I'd be able to share it at some stage in the future, when the message was right, and my friend gave me permission to share his story. The day in question was 45 years ago, and it was the day after the life storm had hit the boy who would grow up to become my friend. He'd grown up as part of a Christian family, 
and his father was a relatively well-known gospel singer in Northern Ireland, and he'd even had a CD recorded, which was much rarer then in 1979 than it is now. The previous day, as his father was heading out to work, he'd triggered a booby trap bomb which had been placed under his car by Republican terrorists. This was ported down in the midst of the troubles. And that blast killed him. That was the part of the story that I knew. But that weekend, he told how he and his brother had stood in front of their house the next day, side by side looking at the crater that had now come to be in their driveway. Their father gone, his life ended so quickly and so violently. And as they stood there, the horror of what had happened still in the process of dawning on them They longed to know that evil had not won. Was this truly a day when evil had to reign, they asked themselves. And they declared that this crater would not be the only lasting mark of that day. And that the bomb would not be the end of the story. Such declarations were perhaps common at that time in Northern Ireland. But normally such statements were calls for revenge... But for them, this was something different. It was a statement of faith in God. The words they used were this. This cannot be the end of a man of God. The faith of those two boys that day was later proved correct. Because that day, fueled by the new stories of the bomb, their father's CD sold out in the shops and his music was heard by so many more people than it ever would have been otherwise. But it was not just the music that was heard, but its message too. And my friend tells how he still occasionally meets people who will testify to having listened to his father's CD and that music being part of their journey to faith, some even becoming a Christian as they listened. Would he have wanted that day to have happened differently? Oh yes. That day of violence had indeed been a terrible day, yet... It was not a day when evil had rain. In the first story, Joseph was able to look back at his life and see how God had been able to use evil acts for good. He could see how God had used his life storms. And the story of my friend and his brother standing at the side of that bomb crater goes further and demonstrates how we can look forward with hope, how by faith we can look ahead and believe that God will use even our life storms for good and for his purposes. The text in Job takes this idea further still. It's more than a promise that God will be able to turn the evil into something good. It specifically says that God causes things that others may see as tragedies, specifically for love. We're used to the imagery of a storm representing the difficulties of life, as it's used throughout scripture and in both testaments. But in chapter 36, Elihu draws Job's attention to the water cycle. Water vapour is drawn up from the seas into clouds, where eventually it's distilled into rain, which then falls to the ground, feeding the plants and giving us food in abundance. God sends the rain because it's a necessary part of sustaining and caring for his people. And storms are part of that provision too. I recall once when I was on holiday in Sri Lanka that a huge storm, a huge rainstorm came one day at the hotel that we were in was mainly populated by Brits who quickly gathered up their things and headed inside to take shelter. 
but the Sri Lankans did nothing of the sort. The rain pelted down with an intensity that I've rarely seen. It was almost a wall of water outside, but they stayed out in it. We even saw some of the children running out from inside to go out and dance and play in the rain. This was the first real rain of the year, and for them it was something to be joyful about, for rain brings life. Without the rain, nothing would grow. Without the storm, there would be no goodness from the land. Elihu's point is simple. Without the life storms that sometimes come, there can be no growth and no goodness. He tells Job that God may have caused his life storm for good. He tells him to go beyond the natural human tendency to see storms as evil and punishing, but to consider whether God has meant it for love. So, the rain has fallen into your life, Job, he says. Why see this storm as evil and run to hide away from what it brings? Perhaps you're meant to go outside and dance in the life-giving rain. That must have been a hard message for Job to hear in his grief. Elihu is challenging him to do more than Joseph ever did. Joseph was able to look back from a position of comfort and see how God had repurposed his pain. And Elihu was challenging Job to do more than my friend did. My friend had looked forward to a time when life had moved on and God had been able to use his transforming sovereign power to bring good from the evil. But Elihu tells Job in the midst of the storm that perhaps God brought this life storm to him because he loves him. Perhaps he made this happen to demonstrate his unfailing love. When my mum died, it was in a way that others have suggested was terribly cruel. Even the days on which things had happened had significance. She'd gone into hospital for the last time on her birthday. And the day that she died was dad's birthday. Why those dates? Could it not have been at least a day earlier or a day later? Surely anything else would have been so much kinder for us and for my father. But there was always going to be a day when she died. I was always going to have to face it and I was always going to have to grieve. It's the nature of life that the vast majority of children must one day bury their parents. And so too, one of my parents would almost inevitably would have had to have grieved the other. And this is how God brought that event to pass. And dare I say this, I'm grateful to him that he did it in this way. In the last few days of mum's life as a family, we'd taken specific time to tell her that we loved her and that we'd miss her. We told her that we would always love each other and be there for each other and that she didn't need to worry about us. We knew that she didn't fear death at all and that she was more than ready to meet Jesus face to face. And we knew that in those last days, she was in incredible pain. We'd even had that conversation that to those who've not been there might seem cruel, but we'd said that it was time for her to go. Time for her to stop fighting and cleaning on and just relax into God's everlasting arms. In fact, the night before she died, when we'd known that her death was certain and imminent for almost a week. We'd even said that it might even be the best birthday present my dad could have if she went now and her pain was over. I hope that doesn't sound heartless, 
but it's honest and it's how we felt. And that was how it happened. What we'd said would be the best birthday present was what God gave. And she died in the end peacefully on that day. That phrase has stuck with us as a family because we really meant it. Her suffering would be over. Dad's torment at watching his wife suffer would be at an end and we would all be at peace. And though we grieved, we were at peace. For me, it's defined my understanding of that day. When we look back to it, I don't remember my loss or mum's final days of suffering. I remember that it's what we'd wanted for her. The deepest expression of love for her was that we let her go. It had seemed cruel that the final week had dragged out. Mum had always said that she wouldn't want her final days to be like that. But with the availability of this hindsight, and for whatever control she may have had over when to fight for life and when to surrender into God's arms, I think she probably would have made an exception and chosen to wait through that week as she did. Because it's made the grief forever to be mingled with relief and forever to be mingled with love. Mum's final days were days we never wanted to have to endure, but also in those final days, so many things worked together for good in ways we would have never thought possible and in ways we could never have imagined. As Elihu said to Job, it all demonstrated God's unfailing love. He didn't repurpose evil, such as Joseph was able to look back and see, nor as my friend looked forward to in faith. There was no evil on that day. He caused it to happen to demonstrate his unfailing love. The day mum died was a sad day. It always will be for our family, but it was not a bad day. And it most certainly was not an evil or a cruel day. I'll forever remember it as a day of love. My and my family's love for her, hers for us, ours for each other, and it all demonstrated God's unfailing love.
Hello, this has been Sailor Time to Pause, a podcast from Plexus Salvation Army, an online church in the UK. I'm Ian. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Sam. If you've enjoyed journeying with us over these last few weeks, join us every Monday. Or any day that works for you. To spend time together, taking time out to pause, catch our breath, draw near to God and refresh our spirits. We share Bible teachings, reflections on songs we're listening to, and on what's going on in the world around us. As well as this, on the last day of the month, we look back and reflect, share any thoughts from our listener community, and ask what we can take from it into our daily living. What we call our personal So What's for the month. Join us, making us part of your regular routine, spending a few minutes to listen to what God might be saying to you. Find us on your favourite podcast streaming service, on Facebook or YouTube by searching for Selah. That's S-E-L-A-H. Time to pause.